Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. All right, hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me today, as always, is Dr. Jesse News. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Yes, happy Memorial Day weekend. Did you uh, do anything fun? Well, fun is sort of semi-canceled, of course, but right. we did go outside and had long long dog walks. <laughs> oh, I bet, I bet the dog was pretty happy. <laughs> yes. I mean, every day is the weekend for her, basically. Yes, that's true. Yes. We made waffles. Yay. I realized suddenly that I think I talked about waffles for the Mother's Day yes. events, and like waffles are basically... My way of celebrating yes. things. Were they Liège waffles? They were not. They were not. Ah. Those are, you have to have a super special holiday because I usually make them the night right. before. Right, And uh, we don't, we just don't always have to have the, the energy yes. for that. But also I think I'm low on butter. Ah. I feel like there may have been. See, a couple of weeks ago. Not enough butter at the I store. I baked chocolate chip cookies and then they lasted for a couple of weeks. But I didn't think I could have made like extra dough and frozen it, which I did not do because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll just make them fresh again. So now I have to make more. But I don't quite want them badly enough yet to make them. So mm-hmm. I could have done that yeah. this weekend, but did not <laughs> <laughs> because I hadn't quite reached that level of motivation. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, I have received previously as a gift from my mother a container of, like, frozen cookie yes. dough. And, you know, she does it the right way where she parcels them yep. all out in little individual portions. Yes. And for me, I'm not ever that motivated, and I feel like I'm going to freeze cookie dough. It's going to be like, well, put just about enough to make one batch of cookies in a plastic right. baggie, seal it up, chuck it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like... Yes. Ooh, how does she seal it when she portions it out? I'm just curious. Like, what does she put it in? She just puts it in Tupperware. In little Tupperware. Yeah. Okay. Little Tupperware. I'll see if I can practice this. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> we do have the Tupperware. Mm-hmm. We'll see if I manage to be that organized. Yeah. Or if I just, like, bake them all in one big baking session. Because <laughs> I assume cookies last yeah. really for t- two weeks. Yeah, probably. Unless you see mold, they're fine. I mean, I didn't get sick. Things with a high sugar content to fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, my cookies are always mostly chocolate chips. I put in twice as many as you're supposed to. <laughs> so there's less cookie to go bad. You don't, you don't measure that stuff with a measuring cup. You measure that with your heart. Yes, exactly. I measure the rest of it with a measuring cup. Yes. But the chocolate chips, I've always been a firm believer in twice as many as they tell you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> that seems like a great segue into uh, recalling yes. um, Love and Hell, which Yay. was our last episode. Yep. So I don't yes. have any notes up <laughs> about this. So we talked a lot about specific mystics who were very upset about the idea that people would be going to hell, basically. Yes. Uh, Marjorie Perrette, uh and Julian of Norwich being the really big people. Yes. So why don't we start there with their sort of questions about whether or not there could be universal salvation? Yes. So, um, yeah, we left off with sort of all of these women. We talked about minna, so love and divine love. 
which is this extreme form of affective piety, um, and the extent to which divine love sort of is the power in the universe, right? So um, it means God, of course, divine love, God, Jesus, but also, of course, the Father, um, but that it also becomes this force that just permeates everything. And so how can there be a place that is outside of God's love, which is what hell is, right? And we talked about Hildegard, the idea that hell has no music. Music is heavenly, the music of the spheres. Um, and so hell has no music. So her devil doesn't sing, he yells. Um, but also the idea that hell is actually the absence of love, that that's what makes it sort of so terrible. It's not all the torture, all the things we sort of imagine, of course, in hell, the terrible tortures and the hellfire, etc. Um, but the absence of divine love. And so these women wondering how that's possible. Marguerite Perrette, of course, um, doesn't touch so much specifically on universal salvation, but her idea, which becomes known as apophatic mysticism, that you sort of become annihilated, you lose yourself within divine love. Mm-hmm. And it was seen as annihilation of the self, which was a heresy, basically, because um, after at the Last Judgment, each discrete individual is physically resurrected and united with their soul. So you cannot be sort of one diffused, like a drop of water in the ocean. You cannot be diffused throughout divine love. Um, so her idea does sort of hint at the possibility, potentially, of universal salvation. Julian of Norwich gets a little bit closer, so we talked about that. She leaves it open. You know, she doesn't insist on it, but she is worried about it. And Jesus tells her, right, that everything will be well, that sin right. is necessary, but everything will be well. All things shall be well. Without really explaining what he means by that. Yes. Which, like, it seems like a divine prerogative to be a little mysterious from time to time, but... Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, he does repeat it, right? All will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well. Um, that's the translation, of course. But yeah, it, it, right. He, the fact that he doesn't explain what he means by well, it could be different for him than it is for her, right? And she doesn't sort of right. insist on it. And then later, which we also quoted, um, that he says, right, what is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall preserve my word in everything and I shall make everything well. Because she doesn't see how it's possible, sort of, that everyone could be saved mm -hmm. because of course it is a heresy to suggest it. Right. But he says, right. right. Nothing is impossible for God. And she sort of has to leave it at that. Um, and then we have Marjorie Kemp, who of course is sort of fascinating and wonderful. She gets put on trial um, for being a heretic, for being a Wallard, a proto Protestant, uh, which she definitely isn't. Um, but you know, she's sort of a troublesome woman <laughs> basically. And that's what happens. And, in one of her visions, when she's talking to Jesus, she says, and this is also, of course, the translation, because this is always in Middle English. Um, she says to Jesus, right, you say that you will not the death of a sinful man. And you say also you will all men be saved, right? So that you sort of wish that all men could be saved. Um, then, Lord, since you would all men should be saved, I must will the same. Which, of course, again, right, you wish that they could, but doesn't mean they will be. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Jesus says to her, right, um, there is no man damned, but he who is well worthy to be damned. And you shall hold yourself well pleased with all my works. Therefore, daughter, thank me highly for this great charity that I work in your heart. For it is myself, almighty God, who makes you weep every day for your sins, um, and so on, right? And her weeping, 
the idea is not only that it helps save her, save her soul, doing this penance, but also that she helps save others. She weeps so much that she's also helping save others. <laughs> um, but there is also this really interesting, right, this sort of commentary that we wish people wouldn't be damned, but there's no guarantee, of course, at the end that people won't be. And the comment specifically, right, that those who are, are worthy. Um, and this is the really, really important point. So we brought up, um, I think we sort of ended with mm -hmm. Dante last time. And of course, this is the place to start. To be fair, Dante, circa 1265 to 1321, this is really the high Middle Ages, right? So he is, <laughs> in some ways, laid on the scene a little bit, right? If we think roughly 500 to 1500, you know, he lives over the 1300 turn of the century, um, this is pretty late in the Middle Ages, in that thousand-year period. But obviously, his vision of hell has become so definitive <laughs> that it obviously should be addressed. Yeah. And it is sort of the most amazing vision of hell. I mean, I think we can say that. So um, his vision becomes this just sort of astronomically important version of what hell is like. But this is one of the big things he has to learn as he walks through, is not to pity the people there because they want to be there. And it's a lesson he sort of returns to consistently, that you have to learn that they want to be there and what that means. And essentially the sense that if you wanted to be in purgatory, you would be. You, would have, say, you would have repented at yes. some point. Yes. So in order to be outside of God's love, you have lived outside it and you have chosen to be without it. Mm -hmm. um, which is a sort of interesting commentary, but very much in line with what we've been talking about, right? Yeah. This strikes me almost as uh, like the sort of thing that you read nowadays in chick tracts where they tell you that instead of choosing to do Dungeons and Dragons, you should repent for your sins. Oh, gosh. And all of those. Wow. Do people still say that? Oh, well, I don't know. When I was a kid, there was someone in our neighborhood who would hand them out for Halloween. Oh, my gosh. And really? Especially the Dungeons and Dragons one. Yeah. Yes. I didn't know anything about D&D &D at the time, right. but it well, definitely we made kids. it more appealing. <laughs> yeah. There was that whole thing in sort of the 80s, early 90s. Yeah. The idea that somehow it was, you know, satanic or demonic or whatever, which was mm -hmm. obviously always ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, it is one of those really f funny things. And it does come back regularly, you know. Um, Ouija boards. Yeah. What else happens? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> um, but all of these things, right, that people always have this thing, right? They're like, ah, demonic influence. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> You know, and it's it's interesting because, of course, the Middle Ages, um, this is a great line. Barbara Newman has this line um, in one of her recent books and um, where she basically points out that um, today, right, um, the secular world is the majority of the world for most people. Right. And the sacred is this sort of little niche, right? It's where you go on Fridays or Saturdays or Sundays, whatever your holy day is, right? And you go to your place of worship and you, we sort of have this feeling of almost geographical division, 
right? You step inside your place of worship and you are in a sacred space. And that's a sacred time. But if mm-hmm. you're outside it, meh. <laughs> right? You're back in the secular world. If you don't go to church on Sunday, you may or may not divide Sunday off as a more sacred day. Right? This didn't necessarily used to be the case. You know, people used to be you could live anywhere. You might be in the hinterlands. You couldn't go to church on a Sunday. It was too far away. But you took the day off and the Sabbath, mm-hmm. right? Keep the Sabbath holy, etc. Um, plenty of Orthodox Jews, of course, do. But they also definitely, definitely go to services. So there's this interesting sense of the way that the world today is secular. Um, and the sacred is sort of the specific, right? We locate it in specific places. Specific yeah. times, specific it's, geographies. It's a, yeah, it's a... You enter into a ritual space for various specific right. things. Um, um, everybody yeah. knows, like, the process of entering into the ritual space, even if they don't entirely conceptualize it, like, turning off your phones and maybe you, right. you get dressed up beforehand or, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of thing. Yes, right? Yeah, you get dressed up to show respect. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And that in the Middle Ages, this was different. Right. Um, and of course, not only in the Middle Ages, but certainly in medieval Western Europe, this was different. Um, that the sacred really pervades the world. And the idea that there's a space that's outside of it would be a very sort of niche place. Mm-hmm. Most places are not outside of the sacred. Um, so that it can kind of permeate anywhere. Um, and this, I think it's one of those things that sort of crosses into the modern day. Uh, we see it in horror movies, right? When the person reads the incantation or plays with the Ouija board or whatever it is they do, they get two into Dungeons and Dragons, right? And they actually yes. summon a demon or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, of course, we get fun riffs on it like Hellboy. Let us name check Hellboy. Everyone yes. should read the ones that Mike Mignola wrote and illustrated himself. And also yes. all of them, because they're all fantastic, but especially the ones he... Did himself entirely. There's a very short one about feeding a young Hellboy pancakes, which is yes. my favorite comic ever drawn, I think. I think it's known as Pancakes, isn't it? Yeah. Pancakes. I actually have a little toy of him with the stack of pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember you talking about that once. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I think, actually just read it or um, something. But he talks about that, how he... I think there, I think it's an intro to like one of the collected volumes with that one. And mm-hmm. he said, um, that he just thought it was funny and it made him laugh and he enjoyed it. And then the response it got sort of told him how popular this character was going to become. Right. Yeah. He knew he'd hit something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're wonderful, but also he really knows his stuff <laughs> when it comes to all of these legends and myths and right. Um, and, but they're really built on that idea that, of course, mm-hmm. fantasy, sci-fi, much of it still is built on. Um, that really the sacred and the secular are not separated the way we think they are. That's, of course, the premise of horror movies. It's the premise of a lot of this stuff. Um, and, of course, the Middle Ages, yeah. You know, that is sort of how things were. There was this assumption. Um, today, we usually associate it, though, with the demonic, right? Mm-hmm. You do find people who see God or who, of course, the miracles have happened in certain places um one of my favorite all-time collections of books probably still but certainly growing up the collection of uh hanukkah stories miracle of lights and it sort of starts out with the rabbi saying you know you say that miracles don't happen in our day but 
here we are. And then you sort of get these various stories, right? Um, and there is this sort of interesting sense, though, I think, that the divine... Um, somehow the divine, we really do still have this feeling of respect. And so we don't, we're much less likely to put that sort of in movies or in various places, right? The mm -hmm. idea that that shows up in everyday life. Somehow the demonic, we don't, we connect with it. We don't have as much um, skepticism, maybe, or it doesn't seem like blasphemy, of course, to put it out there in the same way. But for the Middle Ages, the divine and the demonic are really equally present, which I think is also really important, right? So we have all these women who have all these visions of God, right? And that's equally possible. Demonic possession and divine possession are sort of equally possible, right? Um, not everyone thought so. We talked about Jean Gerson, who's basically like these ah, women yes. probably are demonically possessed, not <laughs> divinely possessed, right? But for much of the sort of medieval world, all of these forces are out there, right? Um, the modern world, uh, partly because of the way I think things are so secular, mm -hmm. the devil can be secular, can be seen as secular somehow, mm -hmm. in a ways, of course, that the divine cannot. You do get people who claim to see, you know, Jesus in their toast. Yes. Um, but that it does seem quite odd, I think, to most people. Yeah. So... I do think, though, that that's this sort of interesting, right? So Dante, of course, um, writes what becomes known as the Divine Comedy. Mm -hmm. Sort of just the Commedia in Italian, but becomes known as sort of the Divine Comedy. Um, and, of course, it has three parts, right? So the idea that um, I think we almost forget that Purgatory and Paradise are both part of that, right? Right. They're not as fun. Sorry, Dante. Yeah, essentially. I mean, to be f like, to be fair, purgatory is a lot of fun. That's not, you know, not to be there, of course. <laughs> but, um, but I do think, um, yeah, yes, um, that the the writing of it is is quite fun. It's a lot of fun, and I recommend John Charlie's translation, of course, C I A R D I. Um, his notes are fantastic. Now, paradise is also extraordinary, but in a lot of ways, you do have to understand medieval theology to get it in a way that you don't to read the Inferno and to read Purgatory. Mm -hmm. um, because again, right, yes, those are things that are much closer to what we still understand today. Hell is punishment, we understand. The demonic, we sort of understand. There's a weird sense almost that even though the demonic is usually seen as proof of God, there's a weird sense somehow that even if the demonic should be seen as proof of God, that somehow it almost isn't always, right? That we do sort of separate it out. That's what I meant by sort of the devil can be secular. Mm -hmm. And so we still have this understanding of punishment, of course. Hell is punishment. Um, purgatory is where you atone for your sins. We still have that idea, you know. Yeah. In a secular world, you go to jail for a while, then you get out. Whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. But paradise is very specific. It's very theologically based, right? And so that one then sort of goes beyond our everyday experience. And it's supposed to. Of course, the divine is supposed sure. to be beyond our everyday experience. But this idea of, um, what I was saying, Isaac Bishop Singer's, right, short stories mm -hmm. um, for Hanukkah, you know, miracles in our own day. It is this sort of interesting idea, right? That if you believe in them, 
it does set you apart frequently. And in the Middle Ages, there is a sort of wider sense of possibility. Um, there's also definitely an extent to which a lot of things that are clearly psychologically based, and they knew this, even if they didn't use the terminology we use today, um, there was also sort of more of an openness about some of those mm-hmm. that they could be signs from God or possibly from the devil, right? But you also have that idea, right? So that people who would be treated for mental illness today might be seen at the time as sort of instead divinely possessed, mm-hmm. right? So you have a lot of these things going on. Um, and the big thing, of course, right, for hell, <laughs> overriding, um, is this question of, first of all, the question all these women ask, right? If you have, if God is love, how does a loving God create a hell? Right? Um, and in Dante, of course, we find out it's been there. And Dante doesn't make this up, you know? Um, but it has been there since before people. And quite possibly okay. since even before the angels fell. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I was going to say, have- Milton, of course hell would have begun with the fall. Yes. Which is still pre-humans, pre, uh, but... Yes. Yeah. So it was maybe just sort of sitting around waiting for someone to fall into it. That's sort of the sense we get. Yeah. Only those elements time cannot wear were made before me, and beyond time I stand. Hmm. So that does make it sound um, as though it, it was certainly that it was created at least before the angels fell. If not actually before they, you know, not necessarily before they came into existence, mm-hmm. but before they fell. Which means it stood there empty until they fell. It also brings up the question of free will. Was it always there just sort of in case? Yeah. That's less possible, you know, less sort of around angels, but definitely around people. Do we assume then that it was created by God during the entire creation of the universe? Yep. Or that by the act of existing as love, that God necessarily implies that something else must exist that is like the opposite or removal from there. Right. Well, this is the question. That's maybe too Gnostic. Well, but because it is, it works out both ways. God is everything. But hell is outside God. Right? It's outside God's love. Mm-hmm. So how can God be everything, but how can there exist something outside of God? Um, this is what Marguerite Perrette is going at. Um, how can sin exist? I mean, how can, sort of very literally, if sin is sort of against God's will, how can it exist? Yeah. Um, these are, right, huge philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like, you know... I'm reading John Trey's translation, of course, but um, the original is also, of course, brilliant. Um, This is the gate. This is the first gate into hell. So hell has a few gates because it's a medieval city. And there's basically sort of the gate that sort of um, it's the first one you go through on the road in that leads you kind of to the main suburbs, (laughs) Um, basically. Right. And then you get into the city proper. Um, and that gate is actually barred and has to be opened by a heavenly messenger. Um, but hell is an inverse of the world, right? Worldly things get you there. But also, um, in as much as the world does exist within God's love, um, 
hell is sort of the inverse of everything you might do here to further God's love, hell is the inverted sense of that. Right. So the barred, walled city, right, mm -hmm. that sort of mirrors how you have to live your life to leave God's love. But the the Italian, um, it's it starts out um, through me, right? Um, through me, Charity says, um, I am the way into the city of woe. But the Italian actually reads through me, per me. Through me um, is the way into the city of woe. Through me is the way to eternal sorrow. Through me is the way to a lost people, right? Um, and that justice, this is a big one. We'll sort of end with this. The idea that justice um, moved my creation. Um, right? I was put here sort of by divine omnipotence, uh, primordial love, which of course seems sort of like an oxymoron, the idea that love created hell. Um, and then, of course, the famous last line, right? Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Once you've entered in hell, that means you, you will not get out. Mm -hmm. Which is also interesting because theoretically the last judgment, something else we've brought up, rejudges everybody. Which is why there's that possibility of universal salvation. The idea that some in hell will want to get out and potentially could. Although that also, in some ways isn't seen as possible, hmm. right? So this sort of idea that on the one hand, theoretically, at the last judgment, those who are in hell could potentially get out, except really that also isn't seen as possible. If you are there now, you will never get out because you've chosen to be there. They're not going to go back through and say, oh, we, uh, we, missed, we missed this one. This one was actually okay. Well, not just that. The idea that... W or this one has repented or what, you know. Right. The idea that you wouldn't repent. Mm -hmm. That being there, you sort of can't change your mind. But also that you wouldn't. Which, again, is a little bit of a paradox. Right? Um, you wouldn't change your mind because you want to be there. And even if given another chance at the last judgment, you won't. Hmm. You won't change your mind. Um, and that's why, right, Dante has to learn not to pity them. But there is this sense, because theoretically, the last judgment, that's sort of it. Um, is there anyone in hell who deserves not to be? That's why the possibility of universal salvation exists. No one suggests that there aren't people in hell right now. But the idea is that after the last judgment, maybe there wouldn't be. Maybe they would all be saved. And that's, that's what sort of makes it the heresy, right? Because of this idea that those who are damned would be. When really, it's also definitely seen as justice that they're there. Mm-hmm. Right. So, <laughs> um, I think we should have some quick background on Dante. Quick, quick. Yeah. He was an interesting guy. Yes. So he's Florentine, of course, right? He's from Florence. They have a big statue of him somewhere there. Yes. Um, which is interesting because I think they <laughs> exiled him. Yes. So, oh boy. So politics at the time, they're sort of pro-papal, anti-papal. There's all this different, all these different forces. Um, and of course, remember, because the Pope is really... Um, frequently in the Middle Ages as much a politician as anything else. Some of them are good, but some of them are definitely not. Um, and are much more bent on sort of conquest and territory. Mm -hmm. And um, there are different forces, different directions, you know. It's a power struggle. It's just all a power struggle. So that the Guelphs and the Ghibellines who are fighting, um, and then in Florence eventually the Guelphs sort of split into the white and black factions. Dante's a white Guelph. <laughs> Um, and he, 
does sort of gain this office. He sort of gets elected, whatever, appointed, elected. Um, and he does sort of side in exiling so people are causing trouble. Um, eventually, like, the Black Wolves get help. Um, and then everyone who sort of was against them gets exiled. Dante has already fled at that point, but he is formally exiled, um, I think, in 1302 on pain of death, basically, if he comes back. <laughs> so he spends the last, well, it was like 19 years of his life, um, abroad, which does make it sort of interesting in retrospect, right, that of course Florence wants to claim him. He always wanted to go back. He talks about it. He talks about the people. I mean, that's his city. Mm -hmm. But also that, you know, they didn't let him back. <laughs> I mean, he lives the rest of his life on the road in other different cities under different patrons, you know. It is also fun to note, by the way, in Purgatory, uh, Canto 6 for this one, uh, he mentions some of these warring factions. He mentions, like, warring factions and all the trouble that has been caused. Uh, and he actually name-checks the Montagues and Capulets. Hmm. Um, the Montechi and the Capuletti, um, as among the sort of warring factions that are out there, um, which is fun. <laughs> so um, that is our mention, of course, of sort of, in as much as there is historical significance to the background of Roman Juliet, right, of course, the political rivalries in Italy going on behind that. Anyway, so... The key to this overall structure, right? We're going to talk about all of them a little bit because to understand, this is sort of my point at the beginning. You, know, you can't understand hell without understanding sort of heaven. And it, that is different, as I said, slightly from today, right? Where in some ways we have no problem putting out horror movies with the devil that sort of have nothing to do with God, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But in the Middle Ages, you, you have to, they all go together. You don't have them apart, Right? Hell is part of God's divine plan. Satan, all of these things are sort of one big thing, which is why it's so problematic. Mm -hmm. So, the big story, of course, for the Divine Comedy is that Dante has gone astray. <laughs> right? Um, you know, he's a, he's a dude. Um, he's proud. He's a few other things. Pride seems to be the sin that he recognizes in himself, for sure. <laughs> but, um... Anyhow, he's definitely gone astray. He wakes up in this dark wood, and he's said midway through his life's journey, because in the Bible, I think you get 70 years, so he's 35, and it's 1300. Now, of course, he's writing this some years later. In 1300, he was still in Florence. He's writing this after he's been exiled. Right. So, you know, 1307 on, he's writing all this. But this is in retrospect, <laughs> which means, this is one of the great things, that he can sort of tell the future. <laughs> Because, of course, it's already happened, right? So people tell him things like he's going to be exiled, right? They sort of tell him the future. Um, he, you know, has some of the people in hell. They sort of know when people are going to die or various things happen. Because, of course, he he knows writing it when all these things are going to happen, right? So these, some of these things are foretold to him um, in 1300. <laughs> anyway, so he wakes up in the dark wood. He's gone astray. Um, he sees the sun rising behind sort of this mountain. He tries to run up it. His path is barred. Um, you know, it's all the symbolism barred by these beasts who are sort of symbolic. Various symbolic animals, yeah. Yeah. And this is all happening sort of before dawn on Good Friday. So this is, right, Thursday into Friday. So remember, we talked about this in our Easter episode. Jesus, of course, is arrested after the Last Supper on Thursday. We have the agony in the garden. And executed on Friday. On Friday, yes. So Dante is waking up in the dark wood 
around the same time we assume that Jesus woke uh-huh. up his apostles and was like, I can't believe you fell asleep. It's the one thing I asked you not mm-hmm. to do. And we sort of talked about the time, right? Sleeping and how that's sort of a sign of mortality. So here Dante is waking up, right? Literally and figuratively, right? He's spiritually awakening. He's also literally awakening. Um, there's the symbolism of him, like the apostles having fallen asleep on the job. <laughs> he yeah. has definitely gone astray. He's in a dark wood, which of course is hugely symbolic. Yeah, physically astray from wherever he might have been going, as well as, you know, spiritually astray. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so he um, finds himself, the path is barred. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, the sun rising, of course, is divine symbol. And it's Good Friday, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is the time to repent if there is one. And Virgil shows up, ta-da, and it turns out that Beatrice, um, so we talked a little bit about Petrarch's love. For Laura, yeah. Laura, right? Who was a real person. Who died in the plague. But yeah, he was, unlike, you know, you read about the dark lady of, of uh, Shakespeare's sonnets and nobody can quite point to who she is, but... yes. She's both real and fictional. Laura is an actual person. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, And so is Beatrice. So Dante's love is Beatrice. She's become hugely symbolic because she's so symbolic to him. You know, so Beatrice is sort of this name now, right? She's become this sort of divine name. She was also a real person (laughs) who he sort of fell in love with as a kid. You know, she married someone else. And of course, Dante married someone else. But he was always sort of in love with her. It's very similar. Um, And she dies. (laughs) I was going to say, that's very awkward. Like, I hope his wife didn't read his writing and be, you know, hmm, who's this? Well, I mean, she's real and she's also fictional, you know? Yeah. To be fair, we know nothing about really what Dante's marriage was like. They had kids. I don't know. But anyway, um, Mm -hmm. so basically, right, she is is this very, she is a poetic construction, but she was also a real person. (laughs) So she symbolizes divine love, essentially, throughout this. Right. And we've talked okay. about love last time and also a little bit this time. Right. So she is the symbol of divine love for Dante. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, like the virgin is up there. Right. But for him, she's that connection. So um, divine love. So she has, it turns out, divine love. Right. Beatrice um, descended to Virgil in the underworld and asked him to help Dante. Right. One great poet to another. Now, this is funny because, of course, first of all, Dante is one of the first sort of major poets of Western Europe not to write his major work in Latin. Right. He's writing in in the vernacular. Yeah, he's writing in Italian. Um, And we had, of course, Francis of Assisi, who is slightly earlier, Mm -hmm. right, writing. I mean, he dies before Dante's even born. Um, But he wrote his poems in Italian, right? And... So we have this really, really early vernacular poetry in Italian. Um, and Dante really kicking off this tradition in grand style with this giant epic that is clearly supposed to be worthy of Virgil, for example, hmm. but not in Latin. So when you say Beatrice descends to yeah. Virgil, was he in the outer circle of hell? Did yes. he not get to go with the... the- right. Righteous pagans. Exactly. He is not saved. He is not fully damned because <laughs> he uh, <laughs> he wrote this poem. I think this is in the Georgics. Jeez, we'll cite this in the notes. Um, and he has this sort of foretelling of this emperor, blah, 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 blah. 
And a lot of people long afterwards in the Middle Ages decided that Virgil was prophesying the birth of Christ. Oh. <laughs> Which he's not. He's, you know, in, of course, grand fashion, talking about a kid who was born um, in Rome. But this is the sort of mm-hmm. really interesting attribution made. This idea that Virgil, instead of talking about, you know, this noble kid who was born, might have been foretelling the birth of Christ. So Virgil gets this sort of special place. Right. Of course he deserves it. As a poet. <laughs> but then there's this added interesting um, attribute of him as a poet who, of course, mm-hmm. was pagan. He died before Christ lived. But there's this little thing that maybe he foretold it. So, um, yeah, he's one of the virtuous pagans in Limbo. He didn't get out. In order to get out, we'll talk about the harrowing, but in order to get out, you basically have to have either been in the Bible. Like Jacob, Adam, yeah. Anyone in the Bible. Yeah. Well, you know, anyone in the Bible. Because <laughs> they're all holy. Um, they just had to wait for Jesus to be born. Mm-hmm. Even Adam and Eve get up, right? I mean, get up to heaven. Yeah, they're fine. So, or... You have to, of course, have been born at a point when you, after Christ, you had to have been able to believe in him. Okay. So, um, but Virgil's in this weird place, right? Because you all say, well, but if you foretold, like, shouldn't you let him up? Um, But no, he doesn't. And of course, for Dante's conceit, he needs to have not been let up because he needs to have been there so that Beatrice can come down to him and ask him to lead Dante, right? Um, Which, of course, is also Dante (laughs) saying, look at me, I am following in Virgil's footsteps. I am as good as Virgil. Uh, He is probably as good as Virgil. You know, I'll put that out there. Virgil, of course, most famously wrote the Aeneid, where Aeneas goes down to the underworld. Um, Obviously, Homer (laughs) had his hero go down to the underworld. Right, Odysseus? Um, It's a thing you do. Everybody does it. We've talked about that a little bit before, going going to the underworld and returning. There's a scene in Gilgamesh. Um. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Everybody does it. Ishtar does it. Uh, we might have a fuller sense of that at some point. Um, and Ishtar has to go through all the gates on the way and then all the way back. Um, that's, of course, really early. That's, a, that's our earliest. But um, Virgil, therefore, is sort of perfect to lead Dante, right? He has sort of ostensibly been there because his hero has been there. Um, he is the poet to lead Dante, who is sort of the next great poet like Virgil, according to Dante, at least. All, made all the more interesting by the fact that Dante is actually writing in Italian and not in Latin. Um, they're, of course, from different cities, right? Uh, Virgil's from Mantua. Right. Dante is from Florence. Um, but they're sort of both Italian, even though that's not entirely true at the time, because, of course, Italy's all city-states, Right. <laughs> But there's a little bit of unity. There's enough unity. Yeah. That, of course, I mean, Dante himself is roaming around Italy because he got kicked out of his city-state, you know. Um, And, of course, Virgil is, you know, known for being from Rome. So you get all of this. He's buried in Naples, right? Virgil. So um, you have sort of all of this stuff going around. Um, So Beatrice, as divine love, descends to Virgil who is essentially the symbol of human reason, right? He's in limbo, which is beautiful, but only Mm -hmm. as much as human reason can be, 
Right. So the light of limbo, the sort of beauty of this, you know, what is it? It's a nice park. Sure. <laughs> right. It's like Central Park or whatever. Um, however amazing and beautiful you think it is, it's, it's clearly nothing compared to what the light of divine love can do when you get up to paradise. Right. So Virgil, is sort of human reason, <clears throat> agrees to help lead Dante on the way. Okay. So he shows up, <laughs> explains all this to Dante. The only way for Dante to make it up to heaven is um, essentially, right, to go the hard way. All right. The hard way, of course, is not just through the underworld, which is what normal heroes do, but also up the mountain of purgatory and then through heaven. So this is the whole journey. Nobody else has done. So the whole journey, everything. Most people do the underworld, of course, and, you know, obviously in classical tradition, the underworld is just the underworld. Like, everyone goes there, just to different parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but Dante is going to take on everything. All right. So um, this is, of course, different because people have visions of all this stuff, right? All these women who had visions of Christ, people have visions of divine presence, all of this stuff. But he's going to physically, now remember, physically, at the end of the Last Judgment, bodies are reunited with souls and everyone ends up physically in either heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. But until then, only Jesus and Mary bodily get up into heaven. Right? So Jesus, of course, is resurrected. Mary is also assumed. And that's assumed like the assumption. <laughs> She's assumed up into heaven. Oh, did I believe that Elijah was too? As I know, in Jewish tradition, he is sort yes. of carried up to heaven in a fiery yes, chariot. Yes, the fiery chariot is something. super famous. And it's, yeah. of course, yes. Um... But that's all a little bit different. Um, <laughs> you know, even for prophets. And of course, this is especially yeah. Christian. This is definitely not Jewish. <laughs> right. Um, mm -hmm. So, the idea that Dante's going to trip through all this physically is truly unique. Right. So, first off, a lot is sort of said in hell as he tra sort of tracks through. <laughs> um... Uh, the first sort of notice he gets on the boat to be ferried across the river. And of course, it's obvious he mm -hmm. weighs something. You know, he's not just a soul. Um, it's noticed that he breathes, right? Nobody else has to breathe. So all this different stuff. Um, so him being alive and going through all this is, of course, weird. Now, he starts the journey. They start on the evening of Good Friday. And they start their descent into hell. Hell, of course, is the furthest from God's light that you can be. It is outside of God's love. Therefore, it is basically in the center of the earth. The earth, this is, of course, medieval <laughs> um, astronomy. Yeah. Uh, which is a Ptolemaic system, not a Copernican system. Um, and so Copernicus, of course, also medieval, right? But that's not the system we're going on here yet. Doesn't Didn't happen yet. Um so Ptolemaic, so the Earth is at the center of the universe. But for Dante, um, what this really means, interestingly, is that Earth mm. is also kind of the okay. furthest from, from God. Um, as uh, you climb up, you get closer to God, and you have to start going through the spheres of heaven. Um, so we'll talk about those a little bit when we get to paradise. But essentially, so to get to okay. hell, you start descending through the Earth, and Satan is basically the center of the Earth. Right, as far as you can get from God's love. This is why that whole area is ice, 
famously. No warmth. Not fire. No. Because it, it's completely frozen. Because, of course, when you're outside of God's light and love entirely, that's what you get. Everything is completely frozen. Right? Yeah. And Satan's wings are constantly fanning the ice and freezing it ever colder. Right. All right. And the ice, mm -hmm. by the way, is made of the sort of trickles of the rivers, like Lethe, that um, in certain places, you know, they sort of wash away the memory of sin and they cleanse people, but then they all trickle down to hell, right? Hell draws in all, all sin, basically. Um, and f it all freezes there, right? So, um, the descent into hell starts basically the evening of Good Friday, which, of course, is the same time that Jesus himself is buried. He goes to Harrow Hell. Uh, Dante, in fact, is there all Saturday. And they arrive out of hell to start the climb up Mount Purgatory, um, at dawn, or just before dawn, Easter Sunday. Nice. Which, of course, is again when Jesus then is resurrected. So Dante is following Jesus' path, essentially. And the whole journey takes about a week. So then Purgatory takes a couple days. Um, they finish that, I think, around noon Wednesday. It's about mm -hmm. 24 hours through heaven, right? So then we're back to Thursday. So he's taken sort of a full week, right? The creation of the world, Dante's journey through <laughs> the afterlife. Okay. Another quick note, there are 100 cantos in the entire Divine Comedy, um, 33 for each uh, book, Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise, uh, except an extra one, there's a sort of prologue for the Inferno, so it actually mm -hmm. is 34. So that's how we get 100. Um, and of course, it's in Terza Rima, which is the sort of three-part rhyme. Um, so all of the threes, of course, this is for the Trinity. Right? Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Uh-huh. The Trinity squared is nine plus one. One is for the unity. Right? Which is the idea that, yes, three attributes of God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, but they're one God. So, um, so that's the, the unity. Right? There's only one God, despite these sort of okay. three attributes. Um, so for Dante and sort of medieval numerology, ten is sort of a perfect number. Because it's the square of the Trinity plus the unity. So, 100 cantos, of course, is 10 squared. Right? So, 100 cantos. Um, so, this is this whole sense. Right. Now, you'll notice this is also, of course, this is the Easter weekend, the whole triduum. Um, he doesn't start Easter week. He doesn't start with Palm Sunday. He starts, he follows Christ's journey <laughs> and then continues on through the rest of the week. Right? Um, from Easter. So he emerges on Easter same way and then follows right up through Purgatory into Heaven. This is happening in 1300. Which of course is so again it's the century. So we get that sort of square of 10. 1300 of course the Trinity. Right? So it's the sort of perfect, perfect, perfect moment for all of these things. And Dante continuously throughout refers to certain sort of attributes of um, the planetary system, uh, the way the, you know, mm -hmm. planets are aligned or sort of the equinox or these various things that are happening, um, which did not happen on Good Friday in 1300. Right. Or anywhere near Good Friday in 1300. But of course, the point isn't that any of it's real. The point is that it's all symbolic. Of course, it's all symbolic. <laughs> all right. So this is the journey uh, led by Virgil. Through the underworld. Virgil, again, has been there before, but of course not since Christ has been through on the harrowing. 
So they run into sort of these earthquakes and stuff. We've mentioned that before. Um, as they move on through and finally get down to the center, right, where Satan is frozen, the way they get back out is they sort of climb ostensibly down, but actually up his legs. Oh, okay. Which leads them back out sort of the other side of the world to where Mount Purgatory is, if this makes sense. Hmm. <laughs> it's this weird way in which Satan is stuck in this frozen lake in the middle of the earth. Okay. Right? Yeah. But he's sort of stuck, but, the, you know, Dante's like, we sort of climbed down, but actually then his legs are sticking up in the air, and he realizes they've climbed back out the other side. So they've climbed through the center of the earth <laughs> and back out, sort of up Satan's legs. Hairy, you know, hairy goat legs or whatever they are. Um, and they arrive at Mount Purgatory, which they will then climb. Purgatory is organized one level sort of for each of the seven deadly sins, with also a kind of antechamber of a few levels. And then once they get to the top of that, Virgil leaves right before they get to the top of that. He's done. He's taken them as far as human reason can go. And Beatrice takes over. Right. So divine love takes him the rest of the way, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And the spheres, he sort of moves through the spheres. So he moves through the planets that we all know. He sort of starts with the moon. Right. And we sort of move through um, with the sun and Mars. And, you know, we sort of move through all of the planets. Uh, we eventually get to the fixed stars. So they thought that the, it's sort of after the outermost planet, um, like Saturn, I think, um, that there's this ring yeah. of stars. They thought all the stars were fixed um, in a an orbit, you know, like the planets, that they all had their own orbit. <laughs> they were fixed in their, so this, the fixed stars, which means not the planets, right? The, the actual stars. Mm -hmm. um, so they have, that's one sphere. If you think of it, right, a globe. There are all these globes around other globes. Yeah, so this fixed sphere. And then outside of that, we have the sort of prime mover, which is essentially the divine sphere, right? That's the first one, and that's sort of the love of God. Um, and we get the foliate rose, the mystic rose that's there um, with the various saints and everything. Um, but anyway, but heaven, you know, mm -hmm. different holy people are different sort of places in heaven. And again, it's all highly symbolic. Uh, but that's why, so you do get the music of the spheres, right? Um, and you sort of move through God's love. All right. So that's the sort of sense, right? As we move out into the heavens, you get closer to God, and the center of the earth is as far away as you can get. Okay. So um, famously, this idea of hell is a city with these gates, right? This first yeah. famous gate that you go through, everyone knows that last line, Right. Um, it's only one of the right sort of, what, nine line inscription, <laughs> but um, that last one, right? Abandon all hope, you who enter here. That's why, right? Because ostensibly, you're not going to be saved at the last judgment. You've already right. made your choice. No more hope. But also, essentially, you're not walking through that gate unless you've already abandoned it. So, as I said, we get that sort of those outer levels that everybody sort of knows, Right. Um, the outer levels are not as bad. Mm -hmm. So you have limbo that's really nice, but not great. Because it's only sort of human reason. It's not God's love. <laughs> um, and then as you slowly get in, it gets worse. Um, so you get the sort of whirlwind of lust. And you have people there who probably shouldn't be there. Right? Um, so like Dido is in the whirlwind of lust. She should probably have been in the wood of the suicides, which is further in. But Dante sort of pardons people in the name of love frequently. So... You know, um, which is right. I mean, you should, because love is the whole point. Purgatory is sort of organized by um, 
how the sins um, divide up according to sort of love, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So there's sort of um, the bad forms of bad love or forms of indifferent love, like sloth, right? And so, right, there's the sense in which um, mistaking divine or twisting divine love for sort of bad ends, right? So hell is without divine love. Purgatory is for where you atone for, for sort of having done it badly <laughs> or done it wrong. Uh, and then you finally get to divine love in paradise. But everyone in purgatory will eventually get mm-hmm. there, right? That's the difference between purgatory and hell, basically. Um, so the city of hell is Dis, D-I-S, right? This is the major city. Um, it's a medieval city. Uh, and one of the big things, of course, for Dante's hell, again, is that inside it, um, all of these punishments are very much an inverse of whatever these people did on Earth. <laughs> They're being punished with that in hell. Um, so you have the hierarchies, the people who are sort of in the earlier circles, they're happy to talk to Dante. They want to be remembered back on earth, right? They want to know what's going on. The further Mm -hmm. in he gets, the more and more they don't want to talk to him. Some of them only talk to him because they're assured that he can't possibly be alive because that's impossible. Um, he starts to get people who are ashamed, um, or who are, um, not just ashamed, but really sort of um, beyond mortified about what they've done. But not repentant, right? This is different, right? Mm-hmm. But this sense of the way people sort of cover their faces when they're being let outside of a courtroom and, you know, all the press is there to take their picture. They, like, hide. It's not like you don't know who they are, but, yeah, you know, there's this sense of sort of shame. So as he gets further in, he gets more and more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is especially when he has to learn not to pity them, right? Because these are people who wanted it. That's why they're there. So the, of course, most famous, right, Mm -hmm. as I said, the cold of hell in the center, um, where we get the worst stuff, which is basically betrayal, right? So betrayal of country, um, right? The traitors, betrayal of family, blood, traitors to your blood. Um, And then, of course, in the very center, um, traitors to your masters, right? So like your king, your lord. Um, and obviously Satan is personally chewing on the big offenders, <laughs> right? The killers of Julius Caesar. Yeah. And then Judas in the center, of course. Obviously, obviously, obviously. Right. <laughs> That's the big one. So that sort of, right, this sort of interesting sense of the way hell is structured um, and the way in which they have to sort of um, deal with it. Right. As they go through and Dante Mm -hmm. learns really what it means to um, not just commit the sins, because you can commit those same sins and be in purgatory. But what it takes to sort of end up somewhere like hell and what that means. Right. Now, for him, it's sort of interesting because ostensibly you can get to purgatory without obviously going through the journey he's going on after waking up in a dark wood. (laughs) But you definitely have to, right, you have to have made a choice at some point. Um, and that's really a key, right, that you've made a choice. Um, I do want to mention, so for amazing, amazing illustrations of hell. Um, <laughs> yes. There are a few major versions. One of them is, of course, the Hellmouth, which we all hopefully know from Buffy. Um, 
But if we don't know it from Buffy, we'll put amazing, amazing pictures in the notes to this podcast. I want everyone to Google the Book of Hours of Catherine of Cleves. Um, Catherine of Cleves lived in the 1400s, sort of 1417, 1476. Um, this is mm-hmm. the, a great sort of Dutch master um, who is known as the master of Catherine of Cleves because like this, he did this book. It's not the only thing he did, but this is this incredible book of hours, uh, which was a sort of book of prayers for lay people to do the divine office, which went by sort of the liturgical hours of the day. Um, and the illustrations of this thing are just incredible. They're illuminations officially, right? Illuminations. Um, so illuminated by the master of Catherine of Cleves, roughly 1440 for this one. It's just amazing. And it's got a number of different hell mouths. There's one mouth that's a sort of series. It's a very beast-like mouth. And it, it's sort of like maybe Limbo, because it shows these sort of white souls. Uh, they're in this fiery mouth. They're like sitting at a table, or they're praying in this fire. And then eventually they're being let out by an angel. Right? So they seem to be sort of saved, maybe in the heroine. Um, but there's another one that's like three mouths. And the one giant mouth is like the medieval city with the towers. And then there's a mouth within that as like the gate. And there's another mouth within that mouth. And you see the little devils flying around with their little pitchforks and all their little implements of destruction and torture. Yeah. Um, It's just an incredible image. But it combines both Dante's city, right? This medieval city that is hell. Um, Of course, the inverse of the worldly city where we, you know, fulfill our pleasures and ignore God, right? <laughs> Speaking of geographical locations for sort of the sacred and the secular. Mm-hmm. But it also has the mouths, right? The sense of hell is this beast that kind of swallows you. Um, so it's this great visual. I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and it is, it's a wonderful motif that shows up um, in medieval illuminations and illustrations of various kinds. Um, the other most famous portrayals of hell, of course, also tend to come in uh, what are known as sort of doom paintings, right? The Last Judgment is also known as Doomsday, of course. Mm-hmm. And Last Judgment paintings abound. The most famous, of course, is Michelangelo's <laughs> um, in the Sistine Chapel. But not far beyond that, and earlier, of course, more like 1305, is Jodo's. Um, in the Arena Chapel or the Scroveni Chapel in Padua. That's Padova, but Padua. Yeah, I think I do. I remember the the devil in that one, right? Yes. yes. The, his three heads. and Yes. So his three heads. And <laughs> this is interesting because, of course, Giotto painted it before Dante wrote the Inferno. Dante knew of Giotto. Yeah. He mentions him in Purgatory, uh, Canto 11. Uh, he mentions how famous he is. They may have known each other. But he definitely mentions how famous Jodo has become and how he's eclipsed other painters and stuff. It's possible that his patrons who commissioned the Scrivinci Chapel are in there too, aren't they? For, as usurers? Yes. So it's possible Dante had seen it. Had seen, I mean, had seen the painting. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that they got their mm-hmm. devils from the same source, that they each got it from a different source, right? There's a different sort of source out there for this devil with three mouths eating people. But it is also possible that Dante got it from Jodo, basically. Because Jodo did it first. So Jodo did not get it from Dante. Um, but yeah, the, the devil in that picture, uh, in that painting, the last, Jodo's last is 
eating people in his mouth, just the way Dante describes. He, he doesn't look perfectly like Dante describes him, but that attribute, right? And yes, the Scriveni Chapel uh, was built by a family of usurers, right? So they are money lenders. This is, of course, something you're not supposed to do. Um, Jews were famous as usurers, right? This is where the sort of Jewish banker stereotype comes from because um, Christians were not supposed to lend money at interest. But you can't have an economy where you don't lend money at interest. Um, and Jews were allowed to do this. So um, it's ostensibly in the Bible that you're not supposed to, but, you know, whatever. So basically, Jews were allowed to do this. Christians were not allowed to do this. But obviously, uh, plenty did, because that's how you have an economy. You know? So... This is, of course, Padova is today about an hour from Venice by train. Mm -hmm. Venice, of course, is one of the giant economic capitals of the, you know, Europe at the time, of the world, right, really. Um, we talked a little bit in the plague episode, I think. Anyway, the, you know, the extent to which ships come in and out of Venice, all this stuff. So um, this is, of course, why the Merchant of Venice takes place in Venice, right? It's this international economic, right? It's the Wall Street of its day, for sure. So, um, of course, there's tons and tons of tons of usurers who are Christian, because that's how you keep the economy going with banks. Mm -hmm. But they were very, very famous for being usurers, and Dante puts them in hell in the <laughs> Inferno, absolutely, because technically they, they'd be either in hell or purgatory, because they have to make up for the sin of usury. And Dante apparently, <laughs> for various reasons, decided that they were in hell. Which is kind of funny. Um, now, they wouldn't have known that Dante was going to put them in hell, obviously, when they paid yep. for the chapel, which was way before yep. he wrote, wrote it. But they obviously paid for the chapel <laughs> for the same reason that he put them mm -hmm. in hell, which is to say that rich people always know what sins they're committing better than a lot of other people do, right? To get their money. It's why you have Rockefeller Center and Carnegie Hall today, right? What better way to sort of buy your way into the public good or maybe God's good graces or whatever um, than by building giant stuff? The Koch brothers' names plastered all over at the Met and Lincoln Center. Yes. Yes. The dance. The dance. Yeah. The dance. Um, yep. Building at Lincoln Center. Yes. Yep. <laughs> David H. Koch. Couldn't understand sure. why people thought it was weird that he gave all this money to ballet. Um, yeah. So, absolutely. Right? So, yes, the Scriveni family, they're super famous usurers. They are very aware they probably need to do something to make sure they end mm -hmm. up in heaven. They pay for a chapel, because what better thing to do? And the last judgment painting in the chapel, aside from the devil that is remarkably like Dante's description in The Three Heads Eating People, and so did they have a common source? Did Dante see it? Or just, you know, maybe letters with Jodo. Who knows? Like I said, they may have known each other. Well, we also have, this is the sort of common depiction mm -hmm. in doomsday paintings, um, is Jesus, of course, on high judging, and you figure we'll have a cross. And on Jesus's right side, of course, you have the saved, and on his left side, you have the damned. This is where the whole, like, left, sort of left-hand business, right, kind of comes up. Mm -hmm. And the cross in Jodo's painting is very helpfully sort of set so that just to the right of its sort of division, which is say, so just on Jesus's right is right. The Scriveni, he sort of paid for the chapel presenting it, like holding a little drawing of it 
you know, of being a beautiful frescoed painting of it by Giotto, but um, also of a previous plan. He wasn't allowed to complete it quite the way he'd planned. So the one that Giotto drew actually isn't quite what it looks like. Um, but presenting the building, right, of this chapel to the Virgin um, and a couple other figures or maybe a couple, or maybe the Virgin in a few different forms, like um, somewhere for other right. persona. But anyway, so presenting it to her on the right side, right? So he has been saved because he's presenting this chapel, right, to the Virgin and therefore, of course, also to Jesus on high, um, which is kind of amazing. It's <laughs> Michelangelo move, right? uh, honestly. Jodo, of course, he's painting for his patron, so he's presupposing that it worked, right? <laughs> because, um, yeah, you wouldn't obviously paint mm-hmm. the guy who's painting you <laughs> on the other side, because that would be weird. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, yes. <clears throat> um, but yeah, so that's... And the same thing, of course, is also true of Michelangelo's version, famously. Um, I mean, not... <laughs> he did put some people in it. Um, his face is apparently the sort of... The skin. Yeah, of St. Bartholomew, I think. The skin that had been flayed off. That had been flayed off, yeah. Um, or, there, I mean, different... Not yeah. not a not a final judgment, but said right the Last Supper that supposedly <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci put the face of the um, guy who was sort of in charge of them. I don't know where he is in the hierarchy of the monastery, but he was in charge of Leonardo da Vinci at least, right? He was only overseeing da Vinci's work and um, bugged him about it constantly. And da Vinci supposedly made his face the face of Judas. Um, in the Last Supper, but anyway, so yeah, tried and true. I mean, as the great the great philosopher Beyonce said, um, "Always stay gracious. Yes. Best revenge is your paper." Yep, <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, yeah, people didn't always put their patrons. It you know, but usually, you you, you usually put them in a good light because you want to get paid, presumably, right? Um. But anyway, yeah, so this is that sort of sense of, right, hell and how that works. Um, and we usually see in those paintings, right, the the saved are being sort of mm-hmm. assumed up into heaven. Um, and that really means, right, those from purgatory. Because, you know, there are already people in heaven, right? They made it through purgatory. They already got up there. Mm-hmm. And then you get everyone else. But everyone now is sort of bodily allowed in. Um, and then, of course, you have people being thrown down into hell, because presumably they have been rejudged and found still wanting, essentially. Um, or still desirous of being in hell. Right? That idea, you have to choose it. So that, right... Are these people who were on on the planet, on Earth, when the Last Judgment happened? Or people who were, like, in purgatory and... Well, that's sort of the question. If When right. the Last Judgment comes, mm-hmm. everyone gets judged. So what if you're still alive and you don't have time to go through purgatory? Well, um... You'll still be, if you are, if you earned it, you'll still be saved. You know? Um, but that is sort of the interesting question. Because <clears throat> wouldn't you have to go through purgatory? Or is it because it's the final, final judgment? Does something else happen? You know, there are these. We're turning off the lights in purgatory and you gotta. Right. Hurry up. <laughs> rush on through. Yeah. But there, there is this sort of interesting sense, though, of um, that final moment. And. To what extent is anything changing? Right? So this brings us back to the harrowing um, and the idea that Dante in 1300 is 
sort of retracing the steps that Christ um, Christ walked what 1300 minus 33 mm-hmm. I guess years before <laughs> um, and that it caused this giant earthquake in hell so all this stuff fell over so a lot of the the roads that Virgil knew are sort of blocked and they have to climb over things and there's this reminder right Jesus broke everything down and carried everyone away who wasn't supposed to be there so as I said this includes of course everyone in the Old Testament including Adam and Eve right um, and then anyone in the New Testament who basically died before Jesus. Um, so like John the Baptist, right? And um, there is this sort of interesting sense of who's left and why. Um, and that is also a sort of interesting topic. Um, and I figure we should mention a couple plays. Okay, do it. Because um, I feel like I probably ran out of time to <laughs> 15 minutes About, ago? Let's call it 10 here? minutes ago. Okay. So, I guess we'll have to end with this, and we'll start up with the next part next right. time. But, um, so these plays, um, we're going to talk about the Chester Mystery Plays um, and the N-Town Plays. Mystery Plays, Psycho Plays, you can call them whatever you want to call them. Um, they're basically all from um, more or less the 1400s. Manuscripts show up, though, at different times. The Chester manuscripts are really late after they were sort of no longer being performed. But anyway, uh, Chester has this really interesting harrowing of hell because it starts out as per normal, right? Jesus mm-hmm. comes in and bangs on the gates and leads all, all the patriarchs. And then you have a second half to this part of the play where there's this woman. And she's just listed as woman, Moulier, mm-hmm. Latin woman. Um, and there's a question... Is she left in hell? Or has she just arrived? So there's this weird question of sort of, did Jesus empty hell and now she just got there? Um, or is she sort of representative of the people who are left? As well as, of course, the people who are going to show up mm-hmm. afterwards. But a woman, right? A woman is sort of this every person. Um, and she sort of talks about she was a she was an alewife, basically. Um, and she sort of cheated her customers. Okay. <laughs> Um, and so she's sort of this warning for the audience, right? Um, you know, don't do things like cheek your customers. Petty crime. Right? But here she is in hell. Hmm. She's missed the harrowing. She's clearly left there. Right? Um, and so there's clearly this sense um, of warning. But also, definitely, 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 this is not that idea of... Um, only those who really choose hell will go there. This is really a, like, if you don't behave yourself, you could definitely mm-hmm. end up here. Right? Um, and she says, right, um, taverns and tapsters of this city, so, you know, other people who are, right, ale wives and men and, you know, people who are basically cheating their customers, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> she says, she'll be promoted here with me for breaking the statutes of this country, hurting the commonwealth, Right. So, you know, if you're doing business like I did it, you're going to end up here. Um, this place is now ordained um, for evil, for such evildoers. Hmm. Basically. Right. So hell used to be for everybody because you couldn't get into heaven yet. And now it's just for people who sort of do evil. Um, but evil in this case also just means petty crime, mm-hmm. petty, basic, ordinary, average stuff. Um, and that is not this sense of 
You have to right. want it. <laughs> right? This is like, you better watch it or you're going to end up there. Which is a little bit more how we're used to thinking of hell. Um, and there's also this sense of, interestingly, right? Um, could she have repented? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when is it too late? Um, is someone who commits this type of petty crime the sort of person who at the last judgment could potentially get out, right? So, like, maybe Judas won't be saved, but could someone who'd ended up in hell just because they'd occasionally cheated their customers, could they get out at the last judgment? Right, there's this sort of question. Um, And Chester definitely seems to come down a little bit more on this conservative side (laughs) of Mm. who ends up in hell. Okay. Um, Interestingly, though, we have the N-Town plays, which are so named because we don't know where they were done. And in its harrowing, There is no discussion of the future of hell. Hmm. The whole play is about Christ's victory over the devil, which is sort of the whole point. This is where that earthquake comes from in Dante, right? All that stuff. Um, Big moment, huge drama. Christ beats the devil, conquers him, um, leads everybody out. The soul of Christ, who has gone down to hell and served all this, says to the audience, um, now is your foe bound in hell. Right, so he has conquered the devil and bound him in hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the devil cries <laughs> um, that, right, in hell um, I lie alone. So there's this interesting sense of Christ having sort of come down, conquered evil, let everybody out, bound up the devil who now lies by himself in hell, um, he says, all fiends shall be my foe, which is interesting. Um, is he sort of completely alone down there? Or are all the devils sort of fighting separately, bound in different places? But there's this sense that people, that hell might be empty of people at the moment. Hmm. Um, and and he it's took sort of everyone. unclear. Yeah. And of course, it's, I mean, now the end town pageant absolutely, you know, has a last judgment with hell and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. It's not that it doesn't. But um, this is really interesting because in this specific pageant, in the harrowing, it leaves it entirely unclear um, whether there are any sinners left in hell besides the devils or whether any more are actually expected. No one suddenly shows up like the woman in the Chester play mm-hmm. for the devils to be like, oh my gosh, yay! <laughs> we still do get people. We, we were so one. sad because we thought we lost it, but now we're still going to get people. Yeah, that doesn't happen. So it's it, it's really interesting that it's sort of this open-ended, right? Hell will come back <laughs> later, mm-hmm. but for the moment, it's sort of left open. Um, and that is clearly the sense of to what extent is hell about justice? Because um, these are, of course, do these have to be competing ideas? Love and justice. Mm-hmm. Can divine justice... And divine love not exactly see eye to eye, which is to say, theoretically, divine love wouldn't allow hell. And divine justice is behind hell. <laughs> um, now, on Dante's gate, it says, right, sort of primordial love put this up um, and divine justice. But this is a sort of interesting, right? What wins? Love or justice? Um, can salva- Can ultimate salvation, universal salvation, not seen as justice. Hmm. So, 
Okay, that is probably where we should start next time. Yeah. Um, Hell is Justice. And we'll talk about things like... Um, we'll talk about some of the sins that get put into hell, like by Dante. Uh, but also things like heretics, <laughs> right? Who are assumed... You know, if someone got burned as a heretic, like Margaret Perrette, it was assumed that they went into hell. Right. Like, straight in. <laughs> That's where they went. Um, and how they compare, for example, to saints who are assumed to go straight to heaven. They don't need mm-hmm. purgatory. Um, what is the sense of divine justice in all of this? Yeah. Any questions about hell? Um, no, I'm excited to talk about uh, things that happen to heretics and you know and saints and how often people change their minds about who might be whom um yes going back and forth because i know that um well dante at least had some very negative opinions of certain popes um (laughs) dante not absolutely let's say dante not being the be all end all of who gets to decide whether somebody is in hell but Nope. Um, we can say that perhaps history rejudges people. So yes, um, yes. I mean Dante wasn't alone. To be fair, yeah, in his judgment of a number of those popes, yeah, I think we can right say that for sure. Right. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, um, I think that's going to be a really interesting discussion. Um, yes. Yeah. Can you think of any further questions? Any- I had asked people if they had other questions about hell and people don't think about it as much as I no. thought they did. <laughs> I guess just medievalists. Just, yeah, I mean like you know? people I think people think a lot about ghosts and not necessarily demons, but ghosts seem to come up right. a lot. Maybe that's more the supernatural. Just my life. Yeah. The supernatural without necessarily um connecting it to a specific religiosity right or heaven or hell yeah but i think it's very it's very interesting that um when you think about you know what what judaism was like before the invention of christianity there was sort of a hell right there's like gehenna but right. these weren't they weren't places that you would go to for a long time. No. And then eventually you would just sort of be dead. As I right. at least and as I understand it. Like the all yeah. of this afterlife, uh, with all of like the amazing, you know, pictures that are in our heads, it was really something that came with Christianity. Yeah, and I mean to be fair, Judaism really does kind of believe in universal salvation. Ultimately. Yeah. Everyone ends up with God ultimately. However, that however that sort of works out, and the various ways it's delineated. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, but here's done. one of my favorite facts about art history, uh, which is yes. that I believe that ultramarine blue that the that Giotto painted his chapel in um, yes. was at the time one of the most expensive pigments that you could get. It's made with um, lapis lazuli. Yes. So. Uh, the fact that his patrons were very, very rich. Uh, if you yeah, go look at the pictures of the chapel, the entire thing is painted yep. in this very, very expensive pigment. Yes. So it's freaking gorgeous. I mean, it's it extraordinary. Is. It is. But um, 
Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that they knew they had to, they didn't need Dante to tell them they might end up in hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> no, the chapel is. They were aware. The chapel is like simultaneously this amazing work of art and like low key a tribute to how, how much money they were able to give him. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, nobody, yeah, Carnegie, Rockefeller, they didn't need anyone to tell them that they were going to be remembered as robber barons. Mm-hmm. You know, Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is what happens, right? Yeah. Um, and so it used to be that you, you built these things, right? <laughs> um, you know, Rockefeller, for all the things one might say about him, uh, University of Chicago. Which doesn't even mm-hmm. have his name on it, actually. Um, Carnegie built libraries all over, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. So, you know, tiny I mean, little towns. Yeah, there's something, there really is something to be said for that. Mm hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I was going to say something really mean about, like, what, uh, wh- what Microsoft has been like, but what Bill Gates has done with his wealth, but uh, I'm afraid yeah. that if I start bad-mouthing Windows, that my computer will crash. Like, yes. it will hear it and take its yes. revenge. So, <laughs> But he has done incredible things. Yes. Right? He's trying to cure disease and mm-hmm. stamp out polio and whatnot. Um, Malaria? Yeah, and yeah. that's sort of... You should do these things. I mean, that is what people with that much money kind of should do. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't be just on them to do it. <laughs> Governments should, of course, run programs that take the money and funnel it into such things. But um, at the same time, you know, that sort of public good is truly beneficial, you know. And the Scrivenia Chapel, I mean, we can go see it 700 years later and hopefully much longer after that. And it's still extraordinary and amazing. And if that kept them out of hell, hey, I mean... <laughs> it was worth it. I think it was, yeah. It's totally fair. Um, All right. But it is also, it's a tremendous reminder of Dante's... Um, as I said, pride is one of his sins. Yes. I yes. mean, he clearly... The entire Inferno is a, essentially, in many ways, a sin of pride. Because it is nothing but a giant list of people he assumes are in hell for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And who is he to say? Yes. But it's amazing. So. Yeah. We forgive him. No. Totally worth him. it. I mean, yeah. All right. So I think we should wrap this up. Um, yes. This has been a great description of hell. I'm really excited for next time when we will talk about justice. And so... Uh, I hope everybody listening enjoyed it. Um, if you have any questions, by the way, that you would like us to address, um, in addition to our email address, which is questions at askamedievalist.com, we have a ask us a question page on the website. Um, it's right up on the, on the header. You can find it. Um, I figured we should advertise that for once. Uh, we also have yes, a, I will try to address them. Yes, we certainly will. We also have a Facebook group that you can join, uh, searching for Ask a Medievalist on Facebook. And we will try to keep you up to date with our release schedule and let everybody know whenever we drop a new episode. And I think that's it. That's pretty much Yay. all the news. 
Thanks to everybody who's left us a rating. Um, if you haven't considered doing it, because ostensibly it probably helps us out on some sort of charts, but really also it makes us feel good about ourselves. <laughs> yes. And uh, if you like to uh, tell a friend about us. All right. And uh, until next time, uh, have a good have a good week and uh, keep it medieval. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.